sometimes feel, oh, I know how to deal with this. I know what to do here. But who am I to speak up? I have this idea that could really work. But who am I to share it out loud? I really know this topic inside out. But who am I to stand up and take the lead on this? Many of us, especially women, have had these anxious feelings at one time or another. So how do we find the courage to speak up, step up and stand in the spotlight? This is the Anxiety Advantage podcast. The theme for this season two is courage. It seems to me that for someone who is anxious, doing something challenging takes a lot more courage than for someone who might not be so phased by the same thing. Because we anxious types, we really have to push through the fear, really draw on a huge amount of our inner resources in order to do something that is scary to us. And that, surely, is courage. To feel the fear and do it anyway. So, in this season two, we ask, is anxiety calling us to become our most courageous selves? I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster. And perhaps I might also introduce myself as an anxious person. But I wonder, what would it be like to reframe that idea of myself and instead think of myself as a courageous person? I hope you will join me on this exploration and perhaps also see what that feels like for you to think of yourself for a change as someone who is courageous. My guest on this episode is Sarah Lloyd-Hughes. Sarah is a leadership communications expert and founder of Ginger Leadership Communications. She's also a TEDx speaker, an award-winning social entrepreneur and coach, and author of the best-selling book, How to Be Brilliant at Public Speaking. And in the interests of full disclosure, I should say that I took part in Sarah's public speaking program many years ago. Sarah Lloyd-Hughes, you are a leadership communications coach, and you're passionate in particular about developing women leaders. Many women I know uh, and myself included, we feel anxious about speaking up, uh, being seen, and stepping into the spotlight. So in your work coaching women, how do you see anxiety showing up? All the time, right? You and I both know uh, from our work in the past together that it can be an incredibly nerve-wracking thing, standing up and having other people look at you, whether that's public speaking or a meeting or even just with certain people that that we find uh, uncomfortable somehow to communicate with. And particularly with women, I see us um, on the one hand being incredible achievers. You know, we're often very, very competent at our jobs and, and often better than everyone around us. But we struggle to lift our heads up and communicate about what we're doing. We can certainly see it in this trust recently, sadly to say that, you know, perhaps someone who had her ideas, but wasn't really able to communicate them in a way that was effective. So often that is um, a challenge that, that we face. We we look at ourselves and we think, well, who am I to stand up? Who am I to speak? Who am I to have an idea or to 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 share on what I know about? Or indeed, 
who am I to need to? Shouldn't the quality of my work speak for itself? So that's interesting that you bring up Liz Truss. And with that being political, if you were to coach her, what would you say to improve her communication style? Bless her. Um, well, slightly different to um, another, dear me, um, recent female prime minister, Theresa May, who, who seemed very awkward in herself. I, I think they both had a, a degree of, well, a strong degree of awkwardness in themselves. And with Theresa May, I would have said to her, um, you know, just try to to inhabit yourself a little bit more authentically, you know, in, in your body, in the way that you're speaking. She had a very strong um, voice. It was very convincing when you heard her, but in her physicality, uh, she lost some of her credibility. Liz Truss, I think it, it may well have been a, a failure of um, being in empathy with with her audience. She was um, a mile and a half away from everybody, especially the markets, uh, as she was communicating her sweeping, very radical changes. And she'd failed to build a bridge between where we all were and um, and where she wanted us to be. And, you know, if you don't have a bridge between two sides of a cavern, what happens? You end up <laughs> somewhere down the middle uh, with a with a broken leg or worse. And that, that, that seems to have been what happened with Liz Truss in my estimation. And do you think that men don't have this problem? Do you think that Liz Truss had more of a problem um, with that lack of a bridge because uh, she, she's a woman? Some people could could point out that, that perhaps women are, are judged more quickly. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I don't know fully where I sit on that one. Um, I think the biggest difference that I notice is the kind of inner confidence, uh, the ability for um, a lot of men, and let's not say all men, uh, but a lot of men uh, seem to be able to really back themselves um, and in a way fake it till they make it. Uh, and we don't, I don't see that so much with, um, again, generalizing um, uh, many women. Of course, some women manage to do that themselves. But really, the, there is a socialized aspect of us as women. We're, we're sort of, um, well, when, when I grew up, it was very common for the, for the main female uh, input on TV to be the Disney princess. And it was our job to sort of wait until Prince Charming came along and and said, well, you know, now I will marry you and, and your life will be complete and, and look at you, I will raise you up. And that's what's known as tiara syndrome, that sense that women are sort of waiting for other people to validate them uh, before they before they take an opportunity, before they stand up to speak, be- before they put their voice into the room. Um, and that's something that I've tested with a, a lot of rooms of female leaders and and um, and it seems to really resonate with a lot of us. So. Thinking back on my own experience in corp- in the corporate world, um, I was a lawyer and often I was the only woman and also only uh, ethnic minority in, in the room of, let's say, you know, 15 to 20 people. We're sitting around the table, we're negotiating, and sometimes the negotiations can be quite tough. Um, and I found it quite difficult sometimes to break in because the men's voices were much deeper, much stronger, and that can be quite intimidating. And so I had to become more direct, which then, if I use that style in other situations, I was told I'm being very uh, too strong, too direct, too in your face. And so it's quite a difficult line to to tread. It is, isn't it? I think there's another way for, for women to um, to behave, which doesn't involve competing with our men. Um, I think there's a, a way for us to come into being 
authentic. It's often the the quiet voice or the different voice in the room who, in the moment where there's a gap or in the moment where there is conflict or you know an, an argument of some sort going on, uh, that voice can be incredibly powerful. Like the voice of the introvert who says, "Well, hold on a minute. I've I've been." silent for for most of this talk but this conversation but now i have this idea so there is something very uh captivating and very appealing about the, the voice that is different so long as we within ourselves are comfortable with that of course we don't like the idea of standing out versus our peers that's a very natural instinct that comes back to herd mentality and wanting to to stick in the group because if you walk away from the group to the waterhole as a little gazelle on the, on the savannah, you are almost definitely going to get eaten by the predator, right? So we, we in general don't wish to distinguish ourselves from, from groups, but at the same time, we want to be noticed and we want to have our achievements recognized. So that's really the fundamental uh, challenge that we're playing with, with anything to do with our own visibility or, or confidence in speaking up. Yes, I, I'm now remembering the times when um, I've stood on stage uh, doing the TEDx talk and also doing a solo performance. And the first time you get on stage and all those eyes, a hundred pairs of eyes are staring at you, waiting for your wise words. It's very, very nerve wracking. And I think it, what I have learned over many uh, opportunities to be on stage and in front of people is to try and connect with the audience. And I think you, you touched on that at the beginning around the politicians who lacked empathy. And it's empathy, not just uh, with the audience in front of you in the room, but empathy around, you know, that nation uh, or, or the wider, or in fact, listeners to, to this, uh, to this podcast to try and imagine yourself in their shoes to make that connection in your mind and in your heart. And not to worry because we are a bundle of nerves. Am I going to get it right? Am I going to say the right thing? Will I offend somebody? And buzz, buzz, buzz in the little old head. Uh, but actually, if you're thinking about, well, what do these people want to hear? How can I actually be of service to them? Then you kind of go, ah, actually, I can relax and, and connect with them in a human way. And, and I have found that that really helps. Well, and you model that brilliantly in your speaking and, and your performance. It's incredible. Um, yes, I think what you're talking to is the idea that if this is all about me, then look at all those, you know, hundred, hundred plus scrutinizing eyes pouring into me and, and I can become very self-obsessed. Everything can become about me, any mistakes I make. In reality, an audience isn't, yes, they might be looking at you, but they've also got their own concerns. They might be wondering what's for dinner. They might be thinking, oh, you know, can I get that deal on Amazon if I, if I wait until the break to, to, to go back onto my phone? Dot, dot, dot. We might be worrying about interest rates, for example. All manner of things that are going on in our heads, um, that don't have anything to do, <clears throat> don't have anything to do with you as, as a speaker, uh, or as a communicator. So, you know, when we understand that dynamic and as the person who happens to be looked at can instead flip, as you say, into a place of service, like who can I be right now that is helpful to the others? And bear in mind that they're not really thinking about me as much as I am. Uh, that does take the pressure off. So how can we find different ways to to have courage to be brave and to overcome our anxiety and step into our power? 
as communicators, as leaders, whether at work or in our families and community? Um, I think one of the most important things is for us to uh, act now and speak now before we are ready. And this is a concept inspired by the, the book, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader by Himania Ibarra. And the, the concept really is that if we wait until we are ready, we're never going to do it. You know, from my side, I have um, absolute experience of this trying to learn a foreign language. I lived in Paris for eight months and I was so nervous of giving French a go that I would only say anything if I knew it was perfect. So I ended up with about two or three perfect Parisian phrases. Est-ce que tu as du feu? Meaning, do you have a light, right? Um, but what, what I couldn't do was then reply to the Parisian who thought I, you know, I, I was French from that uh, particular phrase and then was speaking to me in fluent French. So I always say that you can't, you know, learn French without speaking, without ordering a few baguettes, without getting your fingers dirty. In the same way as we cannot improve our confidence until we really give it a go. So this is my uh, my work with my company, with Ginger, my, with my team. It's all about helping people to do the things that are really scary for them, but in a safe way. So that's one, to actually get on with it and give it a go and, you know, to do the thing that is the most terrifying, but also to be in a supportive environment where people then spot you doing well at that and affirm your qualities and your bigger potential as opposed to pick at, well, okay, you said three arms and, you know, you stepped forward when you should have stepped left or, or whatever it is. We shouldn't be so concerned about the, the minute details of how we communicate. We should rather just get on with it and do it from a place of, of connection um, and empathy with our audience. Wow, that's two two very helpful tips. I think in our lives, generally, we're not affirmed that strong. It's not a it, it, in our culture. It's not really a thing to say, "Oh, wow, you did that really well," or "Tried really hard." Certainly, it's much more kind of, "Well, you could do better." And so we internalize that inner critic. Can you talk more about affirmations and and sort of support and how that can help someone? Grow. Yeah. And I think this is a really great strategy for bringing on the women around us. I, I really noticed that the, um, almost direct split between the, the male delegates and female delegates in, in our training rooms, wherein if you say to a guy, Oh, that was, that was really good. Well done. Uh, and here's a couple of things to, to tweak. Uh, they will take, Oh yeah, I'm pretty much, pretty much sorted. Um, whereas if you say the same to a woman, she'll focus often on, the, um, on the things that have gone wrong. And there's, there can be a lot of shame that, that she might build around that. So I think when skillfully done, this can be a really useful tool actually for both. I always say to my clients that, um, me telling you about your potential is some of the most difficult feedback that you can receive because I'm not, I'm not saying this because you're done. I'm saying this because I can see who you are at your fullest. And now I want you to step into this. So often we, we do this wonderful little exercise where each participant at the end of an experience with us is, uh, you've experienced this a number of times, young May is invited to have what we call a word shower, which is a shower of everybody in the room telling them what their impact um, at their fullest has been. And you'll get showered with words like inspiring and superhero and kapow and 
you know, super powerful. Um, and those words are so important to take with us so that we know um, who we really are as opposed to who we're being when we're nervous or who we're being when we've had a bit of a, of a bad day. Um, and that, I think, is a, a very simple method. But talking to each other's higher qualities really creates change. It, it's a, a whole approach, actually, to um, to, to growth. It, it's called strengths-orientated leadership. And it, it's now seen as, as probably best practice within the leadership space. I remember that experience on, on your uh, program those years ago. It is incredibly powerful to be to hear these things about oneself. And it's so interesting that for us as women, it's difficult. That's the most difficult part to hear. Actually, if, if we heard you're terrible, you're lousy. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But you're inspiring. You're amazing. It's like, oh gosh, it really, really moves people and can bring up a lot of emotion because it's so, we, we don't hear it. I would suggest that have a go with your friends uh, and do a word shower, a power shower uh, with your friends and, and see what emerges. What do you think about that idea? I think it's lovely. And I think we, we, um, we have to be mindful that this isn't about uh, building up the ego because it's really important that, that actually we, we recognize that when we are comfortable in ourselves, that leaves us more space to help others. Um, and I think this is really crucial to the work that we do, that it's helping people to go, okay, I don't need to worry about myself so much. We do see quite a lot of self-obsession these days. And I'm, I wonder, I worry that we can kind of misunderstand what, what you and I are talking to here, Yang Mei, that actually really when people are comfortable in themselves, we can say, right, you've got this. And now what can you do to use your voice to benefit uh, the, the wider world around you? Yes, actually, that's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, because I think if we have a huge ego, it's like, uh, I don't know, a big potato head on a stick. Um, it's, it's not balanced. Uh, but actually, if you recognize all your beauty and all your flaws, and that's the whole bundle and being able to stand there authentically as a messy person, but also as a competent person. Then that's what we're talking about being fully inhabiting, uh, in, in your body. That's what I've seen is, is the moment where, um, where leaders are, are really able to bring their full power. Um, over the years of, of worked with so many people who have ended up getting up in front of big stages and, and big audiences. And it's funnily enough, not the ones who are perfect, who are really well organized, who have really well-remembered speeches who are uh, the best speakers. It's not those who resonate most with the audience. Um, put it this way, if you were just to play a perfect video of someone up on screen, all right, it might sound great, but it's actually the human interaction, 3D, a bit tricky, sort of wobbly around the edges, human being that is the most compelling. So actually, when we, when we look at it, the best speakers on stage are not necessarily the ones who are, um, are, are perfect. In fact, in my experience, quite the opposite. Uh, I, I had a client, um, some years ago now who had a brilliantly prepared speech. He'd got it all written down. He got it all remembered. And then, um, at the beginning, he completely choked. He forgot every single word that he was going to say, which by the way, does happen if we've, if we've over prepared and, and learned every line and then we've, 
forgotten the first first words, it, it can be quite difficult to catch your thread. And um, instead of panicking, um, he said, oh, oh, this is interesting. My talk was going to be about anxiety and, um, and I'm experiencing it right now because I forgot every single word I was going to say. Everybody laughed in the audience. He laughed. And of course, in doing that, he stopped the fight or flight mechanism from, from overwhelming him. He was able to relax and get back into his body. And so there's a real power in um, authenticity and also vulnerability, as Brene Brown talks an awful lot about, in just saying how it is for you or not being so afraid to show your little quirky edges, the mistakes, the human bits. That's what distinguishes us from, um, from the robots, from the deep fake AIs. You know, and that's what our, in the end, competitive advantage as human beings is going to be going forward, that we relate way more to people in their humanness than we do in their perfection. That's a wonderful story. How can we think about our, our roles as leaders or just as a person in a context of other people and how service uh, can get, get us out of our own way, get us out of our own heads? Yeah, I think what's what's really interesting when we look at our nerves is that if we're doing something only for ourselves, um, the fear is pretty big and the purpose is pretty small or just for one person. If instead we we increase the purpose, so we make what we're doing or saying um, about more people, as the more people go up, the fear may stay the same, but at some point, the purpose becomes bigger than the fear. And that's the moment where we can be really brave, really courageous um, and fearless. So whenever I'm feeling nervous or like I want to hide under my duvet, which is, is fairly often, you know, I uh, sure I've been doing public speaking and training other people for, for 15 plus years now, but I still feel nervous in certain situations and I certainly avoid situations of putting myself forward where otherwise I, I might. Whenever I feel like that, I, I ask myself, well, who am I not serving by hiding away from them? Who is missing out from something positive that come through me towards them, some gift that I could pass on to them by being silent? And that really helps me to get off my butt and do what's needed. So let's have a look at several sort of scenarios, perhaps, that might occur for uh, our listeners. You're about to be promoted and you're not really sure that you can do this job. You've been, you're, you're very competent in what you're doing now, but oh my goodness, you're going to be head of this department. How can we find the courage uh, in that situation? Yeah, that's scary if it's only about you, isn't it? If I'm doing this just for myself, small purpose, big fear. If I am doing this for all the people within the, the company, the client base and beyond that I can now um, influence, then yeah, big fear, but really, really big purpose. So for me, the concept of uh, servant leadership and also purpose-driven leadership become really important that in times like now where things are turbulent, where um, we may have to make difficult decisions, um, we can ask ourselves, well, what's the, what's the higher purpose or what's the highest purpose that I can find within this? And that switches or turns down the volume on the ego 
and gives us that incredible sense of, of personal power that what we're doing, even if it's difficult, is is necessary because there's a, a higher purpose. There's more people that can can benefit from. I suppose the other thing is, uh, for me, coming along on your public speaking program, I remember when I phoned you the first time many years ago, oh, I'm thinking of coming and doing public speaking. Can we do one-to-one, please? Um, and you said, well, actually, it's much better if you come in a, in a group because you get that support. And, and I came along on your group program and it was fantastic because we did support each other. And uh, so thinking about real life scenarios where we are uh, offered opportunities and challenges that we're scared of, how can we um, enlist the help of the people in our lives? Oh, that's a, a great thought. Sometimes we need help to even put ourselves forward. Maybe it's someone else putting us forward rather than us feeling like we're able to. Sometimes it's having amazing people in the audience to smile and nod because that helps the old nervous system to feel calm when you've got a friendly face in the audience. Sometimes it can be a little bit of tough love, can't it? Like that that sense of that awkward feeling where you've you've spoken up, uh, maybe something public, and then nobody gives you any response. And there's the sort of tumbleweed and you have a feeling that it didn't massively go down well, but you don't know why. And nobody will really quite know how to or, or, or have the permission to, to tell you why. That that would be a moment to to really lean into the support of your network and quite bravely to say, could you just honestly share with me? Could you tell me what's gone on here? But in general, I think it's that sense of camaraderie, isn't it? That we're, we're going on a on a journey together as human beings who are seeking to be helpful to others then creates movement, momentum, you know, look at us doing this together and, and how much more fun and uh, productive that becomes than if, if we are little poor me in the spotlight under attack on my own. One of the um, most memorable and scariest experiences on your program uh, all those years ago was that you took us all for a soapbox rant at Hyde Park Corner. And this is a very well known in, in, in British culture. Hyde Park is the place where people can go and just, uh, it's free speech and you can say whatever you want. So off we went as, as a group one Saturday and you, you brought a stepladder. Um, and we all took our turn to stand on the stepladder and you encouraged us to have a rant about something that we felt passionate about. Um, and I have to say that morning, said, so, oh, maybe I'm coming down with a, with flu. I can't possibly come. But I was very glad that, that we did. And I think everybody in the group felt the same. And so we stood up there and took our turn to rant passionately and in good humor about whatever we felt strongly about. And the public, the people who wandered, were wandering around Hyde Park came and gathered around us. And there was banter, there was heckling, uh, some people approved of what we were saying. And it was such an experience to stand up there and to heckle back and have this back and forth with, with the crowd. I mean, it was, it was terrifying, but it was so exhilarating as well. What was your rationale for building such a scary experience into the program? And what scary things do your current programs include? <laughs> My secret sneaky profession slash job title is to scare the crap out of my clients, actually. And this is very strategically designed as, you could say, rites of passage, a, a way of us uh, stepping beyond uh, where we're currently at in, in a major leap forward. Because once you have stood up at Speaker's Corner, and I thoroughly recommend it, 
you you can't have not done that. You've always got that somewhere in your confidence that you faced a fear like that and uh, and overcame it. And I think that approach came from my very first experience of public speaking ever, which I'd avoided for for many years, which was me standing up in front of an audience of 200 people and having a probably seven minute timed opportunity to convince them why I was the right person for my my then dream job. But, you know, the terror, the terror, the terror of it versus the relief at having done it afterwards um, was was incredible and life changing. And that is actually what what set me on the journey to to start Ginger and to do this work knowing that it wasn't that suddenly I was a brilliant speaker or you get up to the top of the stepladder at the speaker's corner and suddenly you realize you're some kind of great Churchillian orator. Maybe not. I wasn't. I wasn't particularly good. But I had done it and we had done it at Speaker's Corner and therefore we have claimed something of our power that that we can't ever give away again. So These days, the types of challenges I I put towards people are a little different. Um, Often the challenge for corporate groups include, you know, design and deliver your TED style talk and, you know, just speak in a way that is vulnerable. And that in itself, particularly for corporate audiences and mention your law firms and so on is really terrifying. What, you know, it's not just about my, my data and, and my, um, uh, technical information. I now need to have an idea for myself. (laughs) Whoa. And I need to communicate it in a way that is is authentic. That's incredibly powerful. And then to do it in front of your colleagues and to share in a way that's emotional, that has a huge impact. Uh, we've also taken people to the House of Commons, but this is our particularly our women's work ends up there where we uh, have showcased women over the years there at, a, at an event. And really every single element of our training is designed to get people to do something fundamentally quite terrifying. Another great little activity that we do is to get you to have a conversation with your nemesis. So to to play out having a difficult uh, conversation where you're trying to influence the person that you particularly want to avoid ever speaking to. So all of these little moments or big moments are rites of passage or opportunities to overcome your, um, your personal barriers. And in the end, to realize what a big and incredible human being you really are. So all these little steps and big steps, I think it's for people who are anxious, and I'm speaking from my own personal experience, in your head, you build it up. You haven't had the experience yet, but you build it up into this horrible, terrifying thing. So I'm thinking about the House of Commons. I've not been uh, there, but I imagine the venue is is impressive. It's got years of history. It has the great orators like Winston Churchill and so on. And your group are there. Um, and I can imagine myself, who I can't possibly be in that venue and, and say anything. My, my voice will be a whisper. It won't be heard. And, you, and your anxiety just makes up all this stuff. But I'm imagining that once you're there, well, perhaps you could describe how that impacts on your clients. Yeah, I think there there is all of that. There's all of those emotions going on. The am I really going to be made to do this? Um, I don't want to. I'm going to run away. Or yes, as you said before, feeling a little queasy today. And do I want to? Do I want to do this? Aren't I terribly ill? Really, having a a, a group, a, a sort of channel of people and supporters to say, yeah, you're you're feeling that. I'm feeling that too. It's normal. It's what it is to be human. 
and we're not going to run away from it this time. Uh, that that's the power of um, of working together, and particularly when we do it as women together. Isn't it? We sort of go, "Come on, sister, link arms," and say, "We're going to do it anyway." And if you need me to stand by you as you do it, then sure. But actually, you're more than capable of doing this if you just start. So it's the difference between being in your head thinking about something, possibly catastrophizing, you know, that that wonderful thing that we do where we go, right, if I say this wrong thing here, then everybody in the audience, everyone will will hate me and it, word will get back to my boss and I will get fired and then I won't be able to get another job because everyone knows how rubbish I am. I'll end up losing my house, being on the street, dot, 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 and then I'll probably die. And we so we're sort of in three seconds or half a second, a millisecond, um, connecting this public speaking moment all the way to, and I'm probably going to die. Uh, that's, that's what catastrophizing is. So whilst we're doing that, I mean, yes, we're, those of us who are particularly anxious people are expert catastrophizers of thinking all of the things that could happen. How about instead of thinking about all the things that could happen, we just have a go. We, we speak now, we act now before we're ready. And then we'll realize that even if we have screwed up, even if we did forget that word, really cares. <laughs> and it wasn't all that bad. And actually, um, it might have felt even quite good to do. So building up our confidence little by little and or having these big moments where we go, right, I'm powering through this just now. That's really important for us to overcome our anxieties. It's almost like anxiety is the opposite of, of doing. And actually, once you've done it, once you've stood in that space, you've, you've done your talk, you've made your mistakes and you come out the other end and you realize I haven't been fired. And you carry that memory with you in your mind, but also in your body because you've experienced it in your body in this space. Um, and you've got a war story to tell, but more importantly, um, you can look back the next time you're feeling anxious. And uh, I call her angsty Annie. My little angsty Annie through, Oh my God, the sky is going to fall. Um, uh, I can say to angsty Annie, well, do you remember the last time we did that? It was okay, wasn't it? Went, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Um, so by doing and experiencing, you're moving forward, aren't you? You're building experience. You're building those neural networks that give you confidence. And I think it's also important to mention that we then can, and, and most of us do at some point, have uh, a shame hangover. This is another Brene Brown term, I think, that um, we've um, spoken up, we've exposed ourselves in maybe a different way to, we use, to what we're used to. And this could be sharing with emotion, or it could just be speaking in a meeting where we wouldn't normally and um, and then we replay it and, and we feel, oh, God, I, what an awful human I was uh, in that moment. I, I had this very strongly after COVID. The first time I came back into a training room after the, the long COVID break, I found myself incredibly weird to, to, to hear, you know, as opposed to just communicating to flat humans on a, on a screen. To feel my, my presence in the room with other people was very strange indeed. And I had a bit of a, of a shame hangover there of like, am I really that pushy? And do I really speak like that? And is that, you know, all these sorts of things that we can critique ourselves about. Um, but I think the, the more we get used to knowing ourselves, being honest about our, uh, strengths, but also the things that, yeah, we do that sometimes, our little quirks, the more we can gently put an arm around that part of ourselves and go, you're all right, kid. You know, it's all right. 
So I think there's a big, in my mind, there's a big kind of encouragement to um, to be out there in the world. Um, you know, the, the virtual world can cause us to um, get a slightly weird relationship with ourselves and, and with others around us. That's really helpful. The idea of soothing and and bucking ourselves up after the shame hangover, in addition to um, maybe feelings of uh, positive elation. Um, so uh, one of the big fears that I have speaking up and being in the public eye, and, and to some extent doing this podcast, is negative criticism or being trolled. Um, and I think a lot of women feel anxious about that. What is your advice about handling criticism? Yeah, it's a real thing, isn't it? And, and I often reflect on politicians and who would want to be a politician in these days, um, because of all the vitriol that we all sort of chuck at them. And what used to be in our heads now comes out in our fingers online in quite an aggressive way. So there is a real threat there. And we have to be quite solid within ourselves to, to be able to, to offer ourselves forward. So yeah, what do we do about it? I encourage us, particularly uh, women, but you know, chaps as well, to celebrate w- when we get trolled. Hurrah! I've had enough impact that somebody has thought to criticize me. I remember getting my first negative review on my book uh, on Amazon and thinking, well, how dare you? And you don't know all the work that's gone into this book. And you know, what are you criticizing? They, they were criticizing my lovely little drawings that I have in my book. I drew personally. And, you know, actually what has happened there is I have become, I've become bigger than just an individual person having a one-to-one relationship or a, a one-to-small a group relationship. My profile in that moment has gone into the outside world. And so that reviewer was responding to me, not as a lovely, fluffy human being with feelings and, you know, squidgy bits, but some kind of symbol. So I think we can just accept and acknowledge that there is, that the bigger our impact, the more we become that little bit distanced from some people. And certain people within our public discourse just don't know how to behave. They don't know how to treat other human beings particularly well or other people that they don't really see as human beings. So what can we do about that? I, I would say that we surround ourselves with a solid core of people that support us uh, and that believe in what we're doing. I would say that we really firmly hold to our sense of purpose, that even if we're going to be criticized, we're going to damn well do it anyway. And then we try not to check the reviews, the Twitter, the anything negative, and actually just focus in on what is necessary to get our message out there, which often isn't isn't listening to the detractors. And if there's something helpful that we can take from that, we say thank you very much. And if the rest of it is unhelpful, we just let it go. Yes, I've had bad reviews for my books as well as for my theatre performance. And I was chatting on uh, midweek on BBC Radio 4 and the tweets were coming. And it, it is, it's like a sort of um, arrow in your heart because you're doing your best. And as you say, so I think by looking at it as people who um, maybe uh, with tweets, you've only got a certain number of characters. They can't uh, put in all the English, um, Englishness of, you know, I, I, I beg to disagree. Um, but they just go straight in there. And I think of Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, where she quotes, and I can't remember the quote exactly. Uh, is it, uh, Teddy Roosevelt about the people you're, you're in the ring and you're daring greatly? Um, and the others are just armchair critics or words to that effect. 
Yeah, very true. Yes, there's a lot of spectators lobbing stuff in from the side. Um, yeah, let's remember that as soon as we put ourselves forward with our idea or our voice or our books or our, whatever it is, we're, we're the one in the end who is in service. We're the one who's in service, not, not the critic. Yes. And again, that, that circles back to this idea of purpose and service. And if we remember that, then the arrow falls away somewhat. Wisdom. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. So now, what are some of the things we can do physically to give us courage? We've been talking about, you know, motivational aspects being in our head and trying to soothe with encouraging words. But what about the physicality, especially if we're like shaking like a leaf just before a big presentation? So this is a little bit of neuroscience of really understanding what's going on in our, in our bodies rather than our heads. Because as soon as the fight or flight triggers, because we feel like we're about to be attacked by a predator, our neocortex, the bit that is intelligent and can speak and can share our, our best ideas, kind of switches off. Um, and we're left in a, a cortisol attack. We're left with our limbic system really struggling. And the, the challenge is that we cannot logic our way out of a situation like that. When our body is in, in fight, flight or freeze, we have to do something on a body level to, to get it out of, of that. And people have different ways to do this depending on their, their own self-knowledge and their own bodies. But typically being able to have some kind of a reset, um, some kind of a return to body is great. Uh, like the example I gave earlier, you know, just simply laughing in the room can, can be fantastic because we get away from our head. We, we break the, the kind of anxiety moment and we're back in the room and every, everybody is now friends rather than predators in the room. But if we, uh, if we can't do that and we are in the moment, then we might have ourselves a, a sip of water. We might return to a little deep breath. And also, particularly, it's often those moments where you're really fixed on an idea of, I really wanted to say that thing and now I'm, I'm lost. If we can't find that idea, the more we squeeze, the more difficult it will be to, to retain that information. So we sort of have to let it go. And I see comedians in stand up doing this quite nicely that they forget something. They, they then tell another joke and maybe they come back to, to that piece uh, a little bit later on. And realizing that we don't have to judge that. We don't have to fear the fear in itself because we forget what we're trying to say all the time in the middle of a conversation. I will every day forget something that I was, you know, my thread. Um, but I don't judge it in a conversation. I only judge it when other people happen to be looking. So a little bit less of the judgment. And then the, the other physical things that we might do, uh, probably around the edges, maybe before we, we have that big moment, if we're feeling anxious, breathing, mindfulness type meditation is fantastic for building up our sense of presence in the body as opposed to uh, getting stuck in any negative thought patterns. And I like to um, imagine that I have big heavy boots on uh, so that I'm feeling really grounded, really solid because my tendency is to get a little bit energized and get up in, in my body and my voice and, and lose my connection to the ground. But then also, I, I also imagine that I have that enormous wing like an angel behind me when I'm speaking so that my chest lifts up so that I feel like I've got the kind of whole backing of something glorious behind me. So my big, heavy space boots with my massive angel wings are what works for me to, to get me feeling confident and comfortable in my body. 
Oh, I love that. I love that image of the, the big heavy boots and, and, and the angel's wings. Um, so do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Speak now before you're ready is my main thing that I want us to, to know, because I think that's the, the source of so much confidence and so many rich experiences in our lives. We cannot sit on the things that we we know need to be said. We we have to share them in a way that is compassionate, that's in service, but they, they have to be let out. Otherwise it's only the big mouths that get to to speak and that's not good enough. Sarah Lloyd Hughes, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing all your experience. Thanks a lot, young mate. What fun. That was Sarah Lloyd Hughes. You can find links to Ginger and Sarah's book, as well as some of the things we talked about on the show notes page, where there are also photos and credits. You can use the bit.ly short link bit.ly forward slash anxiety advantage, or go to my website, tigerspirit.co.uk, and click through to the anxiety advantage. In today's episode, Sarah Lloyd-Hughes shared her insights with us on anxiety, leadership and speaking up. If you haven't heard it yet, you might like to try episode one of this season two, where I talk with trauma therapist Dr. Sarah Woodhouse about trauma, anxiety and small steps to healing. And coming up later in this season two, Jenny Garrett OBE joins me to explore the role of courage in the context of anxiety, women, and diversity in the workplace. Meanwhile, there is always season one if you'd like to continue reflecting on how to reframe anxiety in a positive way. All eight episodes of season one are available, plus a bonus ninth episode, all about how we might see anxiety as a friend and ally. These podcasts share my personal experience and perspective, and I do not claim to speak for everyone who may be living with anxiety. I'm not an expert and have no medical or counselling qualifications. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Views expressed by my guests are entirely their own and do not represent my views. If you are affected by anything in these podcasts, please seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified professional. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Anxiety Advantage podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's free. New episodes will automatically appear in your pod listening app as soon as they are published. Also, if you are enjoying this podcast series, I hope you will give it a good rating or leave a lovely review on your podcast app. All these small actions will tell the algorithm elves that this is a podcast worth listening to. And hopefully that will help other anxious or courageous people find the anxiety advantage. I'm Yang Mei Ui. The website link again is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash anxiety advantage if you want to find the show notes page and other episodes. Or go to my website tigerspirit.co.uk and click through to the anxiety advantage. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where I am at Tiger Spirit UK. Or you can simply Google the podcast, The Anxiety Advantage and my name, Yang Mei Ui. 
Thank you for listening and see you again soon. Thank you.